The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I'm pleased to say that the regulators have taken action to facilitate the sale of First Republic Bank and ensure that all depositors are protected and the taxpayers are not on the hook. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound, and that includes protecting small businesses across the country who need to make payroll for workers and their small businesses. That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking on Monday about yet another bank rescue in the U.S. J.P. Morgan has rode to the rescue of First Republic, a bank that had a share of wealthy depositors that took fright after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. The question of how America handles its large banks that are becoming even larger is the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan. Another week, another bank rescue in the U.S. And here to speak to me about it is Lawrence Silva Lachlan, the U.S. editor of Breaking Views. Lauren, welcome back to the Views Room. Thank you for having me. So, Lauren, as I said, Silicon Valley Bank, now we've got First Republic. I mean, can you just walk us through this just context-wise, First Republic, what does it do? How is it different from, from the Silicon Valley Bank situation? Yet, why did it need this, this rescue? First Republic is a lender primarily to, uh, you know, wealthier, say, people. It does a lot of mortgage lending, some commercial real estate lending, you know, some other various parts of the lending market. Its biggest problem was that it had quite a lot of wealthy depositors. And so when Silicon Valley Bank went under and everybody, you know, started looking around and saying, oh, man, we thought these banks are safe. They're not. Are our deposits safe? They looked at their deposits in First Republic, which were above the cap in the United States to be insured, and they started moving their money out of there. And so over the past month or so, and, and over specifically in the past week, there's become more visibility about what those sort of deposit flows look like, including um, after First Republic reported earnings last week. And um, the stock just kept falling. And then last weekend, the company went into receivership in the United States. It's it's different and it's similar, you know, as these things sort of go. Um, every little banking uh, crisis has its own nuances. And so uh, while one unwind can lead to the other, you know, the, it, the issues at, at First Republic were different than those at Silicon Valley Bank. And so, Lauren, I, I'm just sort of curious about this because there's a the white knight buyer in this situation is J.P. Morgan. So Jamie Dimon comes in. But... It's, he's quite an unusual white knight in this situation, right? Because J.P. Morgan is so big that they had actually been sort of barred from buying up other banks, right? Because there's a sort of a concern that they you know, have too much kind of depositor market share. But this crisis, as you say, is quite different from others in that they, there was a need for a rescuer. And uh, I guess the, the too big to fail sort of made sense here. Well, I mean... Air quotes made sense, right? It depends on who on who you're talking to and philosophically what you think about too big to fail. Um, just to sort of roll all that back a little bit, you know, I think the thing that is in some of our sort of institutional memories is the financial crisis and what happened then when J.P. Morgan ran to the rescue of, of Bear Stearns and other banks. 
but there has been this, and I think what you're referring to is this sort of size. There's this deposit cap in the United States where banks, uh, any bank can't have more than 10% of the deposits. And if you look at the way that the sector is laid out, JP Morgan actually already had a little bit more than that. Banks are allowed to grow organically to get more than that. But once they get above that 10% deposit cap, they cannot go out and, and proactively buy another bank. Even still, with the deal this this week, uh, J.P. Morgan had already breached that deposit cap by growing organically. And just what to JP Morgan, pick, up, yeah. pick up on that like organic growth, right? I, I guess this, as you're talking about these these smaller lenders that, you know, tended to have sort of maybe wealthy clients that could move their money very quickly, that actually they were moving their money into these big banks. Like, so J.P. Morgan didn't really need to go buying, you know, to get more market share just because the nature of it being big, it was perceived to be safe by those those wealthy depositors. And I would imagine many of them did already go to J.P. Morgan. Yeah, I don't know the specific deposit flows for J.P. Morgan after the Silicon Valley Bank crisis, but you're right. I mean, I think all of the large institutions in the United States benefited in some ways from getting deposits from that. And this is, again, a consequence from the financial crisis. What we saw in the financial crisis was that these large U.S. institutions were you know, effectively backed by the U.S. government. And we kind of have a lot of security and certainty in our banking system, knowing that the U.S. government is not going to let these huge institutions fail. They are too big to fail. Uh, and so when you have a banking crisis in the sort of mid-tier and smaller banks, it's, it seems natural. What's going to happen? Oh, you're going to move your money to the bank that you know that is always going to be there. And that's exactly what happened. So you're right. They've sort of they've grown organically probably over many years as a result of that of sort of that picture here. And Lauren, what that, do you yeah. think? What do you think? Or when you're kind of talking to people about this, what is the sense then among, I guess, regulators and, and banks in general that what does this do then to have these banks become even bigger, become even more, I guess, the, the economy is even more reliant on them? So it depends on who you ask, right? On the one hand, if you look at the U.S. banking sector, and I'm happy to give you my opinion if you wanted to, but I'll lay out the picture for you. If you look at the U.S. banking sector, we have thousands of banks, you know, tons of these small community banks and a lot of U.S. politicians uh, because of the political landscape here being very sort of big and broad, are, are kind of beholden to their own like little tiny, you know, kind of neighborhood bank. At the same time, you do have these like massive banks, Bank of America, uh, JP Morgan, you know, are three out the largest Wells Fargo. Um, and so people look at those and say, oh, you know, these banks are huge and they're cornering the market. And if you look at deposits, they aren't paying fair rates. That's all true. If you pull back the lens even further and you look globally, you know, actually compared to other countries, the U.S., even with just those four large banks, has, you know, a very robust and competitive banking market. I'm thinking, you know, very specifically about what happened with the merger between U.S. Uh, UBS and Credit Suisse. So um, I think it's true. Speaks actually, really, even, yeah. where, even the country where I'm from, there is really kind of I mean, many, many banks have retreated. There's really kind of like two banks now in Ireland that are operating. Uh, the mortgage yes. market. So that, so yes, I, I understand what you're saying with that. I mean, and once you sort of get this concept of too big to fail, and you recognize that these banks are are sort of government backed, partly you know state owned is the sort of wrong word, but um, then you start to think, well, what's you know what's the point if they're so heavily regulated? Do you really need a lot of them? And then the sort of question of how much the regulation matters comes in. And so I think this push and pull between these huge banks, institutions, and their CEOs, and, and really sort of bring it back to Diamond, him being at the forefront of this because he's been around for so long, 
that pull between having the government backing and having the government regulation is something that happens regularly, often, and globally. And everybody sort of comes to their own decision on that. Um, and so while here in the United States, we tend to have this debate in isolation, thinking that we're the only ones who think and care about this, actually, this is something that, you know, is, is pretty standard. And, and this question, I guess, of, of what to do in this particular crisis, because I guess the regulators were not prepared for this crisis. You know, they, you always say you're preparing for the last crisis. I mean, the idea that people would move deposits very quickly, I don't think was necessarily on the radar of regulators. But at the same time, First Republic, I don't get the impression this is the last of these rescues that's going to be needed. It's true. So what's changed since the last crisis, and this speaks exactly to that, is the ability to move money electronically. Um, so 2008, I think you could move some moderate amounts of money electronically, but it's nothing like you can do now. And so sort of the swiftness with which people could pull their money from one bank and move it into the other exacerbated the crisis. And as always, you know, regulators are on the back foot when these things sort of happened. There, you know, again, the U.S., some, there's quite a lot of changeover between administrations. So there's not a whole lot of continuity um, when there is a change of administration. And, you know, where where is there continuity? Oh, in the banking sector and specifically in J.P. Morgan, because Jamie Dimon has been around now for two crises. And so, you know, the, the, the sort of individuals in the U.S. banking sector that have been there and have institutional knowledge are in some ways teaching U.S. regulators about what happened last time. Wow, that is very interesting. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, all eyes are, are on what the next rescue will be and and who maybe the next rescuer will be. And we'll be watching closely. Lauren, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashtich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Apple Podcasts, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.